Welcome back to the Crime Conspiracy Show. This is Megan. This is Ciara. And we have a special guest today. <laughs> Hello, Tia. Hello. <laughs> Thanks for having me. So, I'm so glad you're here. We're so excited. So Tia has been my friend since we were babies. <laughs> as long as we can remember. As long as we can remember. And Megan came into the picture later, I but <laughs> but we're all friends. <laughs> but we've all been friends for years and years and years. And Tia came to us with this episode she wanted to do, and she was talking to us about it, and we're like, well, just come on the show. <laughs> yeah, so she's going to be our resident expert. <laughs> yes, she has lots of notes about it, and she is ready to go. Sister so is prepared. <laughs> so Megan. <laughs> Which I'm glad for, because this case will blow your mind, and there are so many details. So I'll tell you, my main source of information for the case is another podcast called Counterclock. Thank you, Tia, for letting me know about this. They did 20 episodes on this case, and we're going to see how many we end up with. This is likely going to be multiple episodes, so I'll preface that up front. We're going to see where we end up, but there's so much. And we're not going to go as in-depth as they do, so if you want to get real deep, go check out their podcast because it was amazing. She's very factual and asks hard questions and digs into things that other people haven't thought of or didn't want to think of. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it was purposely. I don't know. We'll see. But it was insane. I am pumped because I came into this not knowing what even this case is, really. <laughs> and so I am ready to hear all the facts. Okay. The case is kind of widely known as the Prom Night Murders. Oh. So, <laughs> which totally is deceiving. It oh, is. really? Yes. Because there's, I mean, you'll see. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> there's a lot going on. So, I'm going to jump in. We're going to start with the crime itself. So, the date was April 30th, 1989. So, this might be why you haven't heard of it. Because it is a little older. Yeah. We were not yet born. <laughs> True. <laughs> so, 1989. And the Olive Branch Church Congregation in Lakeville, Indiana, and was beginning to gather for their service. So the service started at 930. And the superintendent at the church, a guy named Dave, always got there early. He liked to kind of greet everyone as they came in. And he would talk to the pastor named Bob Pelly and see if he needed anything. So he usually got there by 9 a.m. like on the dot. Okay. And he was bugged because that day he was running late. He got there at 9, 10, and he's cute. He's a war veteran and mm. like to be very, you know, on his schedule. Yeah. So he got there at 9, 10 and was worried about it, but no one else was there. So he's like, oh, I'll just give him a minute, you know, but people start filing in and the services start at 9.30. Where the heck is the pastor? Yeah. So he's wondering the same thing. He's like, okay, what's going on? And, you know, it's kind of like, I guess I'll give them a minute. Maybe they slept in. I don't know. And then this 11-year-old comes back to the church, um, which was strange. It was a little girl because... Every Sunday morning, she would go over to the pastor's house because he had two young daughters her age. Mm -hmm. So they'd all kind of play together before. And then they'd all come to church together. And they did that every morning. But she said that she went over there and no one answered. The doors were locked. So she just came back and was like, I don't know. At 930, they're still not there. Mm -hmm. And 
yeah. pastor of this the pastor. The yeah. pastor himself. And they always start 930 sharp. And obviously he's the pastor, so he's normally early. Yeah. So he's normally there when Dave gets there at 9. Okay. So at 930, Dave goes over to see what's going on. And he knocks, no one's answering, so he's kind of trying to look around and see what's going on, but all of the blinds and curtains are closed. He goes back to the church, kind of waits a few minutes, but it's bugging him. He's bothered. He's like, that's super out of the norm. At 9.45, he took this guy named Wilmont with him, who's just another member of the congregation. Mm -hmm. And Dave had a spare key because he was the superintendent. He had it to the church and they lived in the parsonage. So kind of an attached deal. Okay. And they were like, I don't know if this will work, but we'll just try it. See if the same key works. It didn't work. So they go back to this other lady and her name's Lydia. Her husband was also an employee at the church and had a different key. They try that key on the front door, and that works. So by the time they actually get in there, it was like 10, 10 a.m. Mm-hmm. Dave goes in first, and he's like, you guys stay here. I'll come around and let you in, because they were at a different door. They had multiple doors. So he's coming over, and as he's walking, he sees Bob's glasses on the floor. So he walks over to the glasses and sees Bob laying in the hallway in a pool of blood oh my gosh i know can you imagine and hate to be gruesome but part of his face is missing what yeah so he immediately knew he was dead yeah like very dead but yeah it says part of his face was missing oh my gosh i know can you imagine walking up to that do they say was it like cut off or was it like that he was hit we'll get to that okay we will get getting ahead of myself i just need to know (laughs) easy easy okay as they're walking through so he starts going down this other part of the house and he can also see feet at the bottom of their stairs like going down to the basement Mm. so he's assuming they are also dead and calls the other people in there he's like wilmont they're dead. You gotta call the police. So Wilmot jumps on the phone with the police and paramedics arrive a few minutes later. So it didn't take them a super long time to get there. So I don't know if it's okay for me to do this, but yes. I'm gonna do a little backstory on the family really quick, just so that you know yeah. the family dynamic. Yeah. So there is Bob Pelly and his new wife, Dawn. Okay. So they are a newly married, blended family. Mm -hmm. Okay. Bob's wife died. Don's husband died. They met each other, got married. Bob has two kids, Jeff and Jackie. Don has three little girls. That is Jessica, Janelle, and Jolene. Just so you know. (laughs) Yeah. Just so you know going into it. We've got Jeff, Jackie, Jessica, Janelle, and Jolene are all of the five children. Okay. And they're like, they're all step-siblings then, Yeah, right? so okay. the three yeah. youngest yeah. are Don's. Mm-hmm. The two oldest are Bob's. Bob's. Okay, got it. Okay. Sorry for that little break. No, no it's good. good to know the background of the family, for it's, sure. It's important once we get going into this, so. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, paramedics come first. At 10.30, the police arrive on scene and start looking into things. They find that Bob had been shot to death in the hallway. He had one gunshot to his torso. It went through his spinal cord. Oh my gosh. And then one to the face. 
Okay, and so that's why like, part of his face, was, of his face was missing because he was shot with a shotgun. And then just yeah. an important little detail with that, they found that the person that shot them shot at an angle like above him. So it had this person had to have been taller than him. Than him, yes. Okay, yeah, or it could so, have been like what almost like execution style, like he was on his knees, right? So what they think happened is he was shot in the abdomen first, which hit his spinal cord. So he immediately fell to the ground, mm. fell backwards, and then they think the shooter came and stood over him and then did the face shot. I see. But the one they're talking about that has that angle is the one to, to the, abdomen. the abdomen. Okay. Okay. Got it. Sorry, and I don't know if you have these little details, so I'm just kind of throwing them in. Throw them in. As we go. That's why we'll you're here. <laughs> we'll throw them in whenever. I'm good with it. Then, moving on to the people in the basement, they go down there and find... This is heartbreaking. So sad. Dawn, the mother. Okay. With her arms around the two youngest girls, mm. all three of them had been shot to death. Oh my god! And another detail there that they had found that, I mean, this is just so sad, but Dawn had her fingers shot off, mm-hmm. which they said that she was shot first because she was bracing, like, Putting her hand yeah. up, like, trying to stop it Aww. and stop them. And they shot through her hand and shot her. Sad. I know. And then shot the two little girls. How how old were the kids? Did we... Do you know how the ages? Six and eight. Little. Oh, my gosh. Like, I can't imagine, you know, being a mother, having little kids, and being in that situation where you just want to protect your kids. Yeah, that's all she And you're holding them because you're trying to protect them. Oh, it breaks my heart. Yeah, and so they shot her first so that then, you know, then she could no longer protect the little girls. But I know. Who could do this? This makes me so angry. I know. It's gruesome. And there were multiple comments made by, like, different police officers and other people who saw the scene that they're, like, it's something no one should ever have to witness. I don't love using these words, but it will give you an idea of how gruesome there was blood and brain matter all, all over. over. Oh my god! And that's actually an important fact. So yes, everywhere. Like the girls had cuts on their hands, and they found. I'm like tearing up thinking about it. It was um, skull fragments from the mom. Oh my Terrible. gosh, that is awful. Terrible. It's one of the worst crimes. How have I not even heard of this? Very important to know that. That's a very important little fact. Yes. The reason I say these things is because with this case, you have to get so nitty gritty. Mm -hmm. Like their timeline comes down to minutes. Yeah. Jeez. It's insane. So you do have to know all these little things Mm -hmm. because there's not really clear answers here. Okay. Something else that's important to know is that the house was not in any kind of disarray. Like, it had not been ransacked. Mm. They weren't missing all their stuff. So, it wasn't like people came in and, yeah, robbed them. Yeah. It was, the house was fine. The detective who got put on the case was named John Bowditch. And he also worked with Mark Center, who was an Indiana State Trooper. So those were really the two main guys on the job. Okay. So while they're on the scene, what's weird is this guy named Rick Hoover, who was a forensic pathologist, 
just happened to be driving by. I forgot about this. It's so that's why so I don't have the face. <laughs> just happened to be driving by. So he comes over, comes on in, takes a look around. What? I know. He lived close, so they were saying he was on his way home from mm-hmm. church and saw everything and was like, I'll go help. And so the detective, John and Mark, were kind of grateful. They're like, great, he's a pathologist. Like, coroners don't have specific coroner training. You know, it could have just been, like, a doctor or whoever got voted in. So they're all, great, he'll give us some really good answers. Like, this is, obviously, you want as much help as you can get with this kind of case. Mm -hmm. They're in a very small town in Indiana. Like, this is not a frequent thing. And in 1989. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 30-something years ago. Not a lot of training in that arena. He comes in and he said he came because he wanted to learn more about blood splatter patterns. Okay. So he's walking through, taking note of things. He's not already trained in blood splatter, but he also didn't make any major claims in that realm. So he's just kind of walking around. (laughs) And here's something weird. With this Rick guy. He said that he came mid-afternoon. This is what the logs say as well at 3.07. And had a colleague with him. They both stopped in. They said they talked to the coroner. But the coroner didn't arrive until 6.15 p.m. Really? That's more than three hours later. I feel like you would notice. Yeah. Yeah. And what's also weird is at 5.45 p.m., Rick asked Mark and John to call the coroner. What? I know. And this part of things actually really makes me angry. There is zero coroner documentation on the crime scene. Like notes as they're walking around and looking at things. How? The thing that also really bugs me with this is they don't look at one of the most important things in any crime. They don't do the time of death. One of the most frustrating things to me, too, is that they don't look at the time of death on the bodies. Zero time of death. So they Yeah, they don't do anything to figure out, which that is very important in any case. In like any murder any case. case. Like... Nothing. Crazy. So the coroner didn't do that. Rick Hoover didn't do that, who is the forensic pathologist, so you would think he would understand, of all people, how important that is. They also did not test for liver mortis or rigor mortis. So the way the blood settles can tell you a lot about how the victim died, how long they've been dead. Same thing with rigor mortis. I... That makes absolutely zero sense to me. Mm -hmm. Because in, like Tia was saying, in any murder case... In any death, it's so important to know the time they died so you can set a timeline of, like, when this person was at this house and when this happened. Because that can narrow down a lot of things. You have to have an alibi. You have to have so much information for that time. Everything is centered around time of death. Wow, that's, like, really frustrating. Isn't that insane? That's insane. I feel like of all the evidence you could have gathered... Of all the notes you could have taken, neither the coroner nor Rick Hoover had any crime scene notes. Nothing for this case. Not a zip. Nothing. And especially something this gruesome where it's... Yeah, this is obviously his biggest case. A quadruple murder. Yeah. What the heck? And very gruesome murder. Insanely. Obviously, it wasn't a robbery, so it was personal. Yep. 
insane. Yeah. Wow. And I'll get into, like, later, I'll pipe in again and come back to this on the reason why I think they didn't. Okay. So. I'm curious to hear that. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, Rick also ended up doing the autopsies, which obviously, at least we have notes for that. <laughs> we so, some notes. I don't have everything from the autopsies. I'm just going to go over a couple things that I think are important to highlight. Because they go, you know, how intense they get. Yeah. So, Bob was facing the shooter. He was shot two times with the shotgun. They were deer shots. So, mm. if you don't know a lot about shotguns and how they work, if you're using something to shoot birds, they kind of splatter more. Yeah. Deer, they're more centered. So, since his hadn't kind of splattered out. Mm-hmm. Deer shots. First two, it was his chest specifically. Severed the spinal cord. Then to his face at close range, he was already lying down. And the way that the house was set up, Bob's head was toward the front door and his feet were down a hallway. So that would indicate that the shooter also had to be in the hallway. Okay. Because he was falling backwards. Yeah. Right? What's weird is the way the house is set up, down that hallway, all there is are two bedrooms. The parents' bedroom and their son Jeff's bedroom, who was 17 at the time. I'm going to get to him in a minute because he's not a part of this murder, as you already know. And like we mentioned, the shot to the chest has a slight downward angle. Mm -hmm. And we've all shot a shotgun. I'm assuming, yeah. (laughs) So, you know, you hold it at your shoulder, which means he would have had to be taller. I say he, the killer, would have had to be taller than Bob, who was 5'11". Okay. Or they shot higher than their shoulder, but shotguns kick. Hard. Hard. You would drop that thing. So, you'd like hit yourself in the face. It wouldn't work. You'd, or they had a stool, but that's obviously not what happened. That's something really important to know. Something else important about Bob is the stomach contents of the family were all the same, they had the same meal, except for Bob, who also had popcorn in his stomach. So... Remember that for later. Okay, so Bob had popcorn in his stomach. Yes. So it wasn't digested yet. Nobody else had popcorn. Oh, just Bob. Just Bob. Okay. And then the girls had all been shot point blank in the head. Oh my gosh. I know. Oh, it makes me sick. Me too. So sad. Me too. And another thing that's crazy is the killer left no casings. They picked them all up before they left. All the casings and no murder weapon was found. No murder weapon, no casings. Wow. I know. It's wild. So, I don't know if this is answered anywhere, but in this neighborhood, is it kind of like houses are farther apart, do you know? Like, would a neighbor hear the gunshots? So, from what I looked at, this parsonage, or it's just a home. It's literally just a home that's Mm -hmm. on the same property as the church, Mm -hmm. and there's neighbors. So that is a good question to ask, but I don't, I really don't have any answers. I don't, I don't know if you do. I don't know the distance, but the neighbors talk later about seeing lights on at different times in the house. So they're close enough that they can be like, oh, their basement light is on. And their dog, like they said something about. Yeah, they can see the dog. dog. Yeah. So it's not like miles. It's not this huge farm, right? Like the neighbors can see into the backyard, like they can see each other. But then you could hear a gunshot, especially a shotgun. Yep. Yeah. Did, did they talk about that at all? Nobody reported a gunshot at 
this There was time. at least four. Yeah. <laughs> at the time that they think it happened, nothing. Mm-hmm. Weird. I know. Well, and something else to know is they think there were at least six shots. So two to Bob. Mm-hmm. Three for the girls in the basement, so we're at five. There was also this shot kind of in the hallway, like, going down the stairs. So what they think happened is mom was originally upstairs and then was running down after Bob got shot to go to protect the girls, and they fired as she was running and hit, like, the wall in the hallway. Oh my gosh, I cannot even imagine how terrifying that must be. I can't either. And knowing that your kids are there, I mean, what would you even do? Yeah, because also they're in the basement, so there's no way they can just run out the front door no, to go get trapped. help. No, they're trapped. And there's no way to, like, nowadays it's just pick up our phone and dial 911. That yeah. easy. What you were know? they going to do yeah. then? Yeah. There's right. no... Crazy. It's awful. A couple of things that they collected from the crime scene. They had a disposable camera and then a 35 millimeter camera. There were some keys in a trash can outside. And there was also a locket with a photo outside. This photo was not of any of the victims. Weird. What's also weird is the police on those last two items, the keys and the locket, did not even photograph those as evidence. What? And they don't, I don't think they knew where the keys were to or anything about those Mm-mm. keys, that set of keys. And then a locket with a picture of somebody in it. And yeah. keys in a trash can. That's not, not a place where you put keys. I do not understand that. Holy crap. Why did they just drop the ball on this? Oh, just you wait. Oh, you wait. That's, <laughs> I think that's my most frustrating thing Like with crimes is yeah. how messed up our justice system is and how they make so many mistakes, which I am not like... I'm not in that field, but there's always so many mistakes made where I'm like, how? Why? Are you freaking kidding me? So. Definitely. And I I don't know. I have this, like, theory of reason that I'll go back to, but I truly think that they wanted to believe what they wanted to believe in this case. And sometimes I I feel like that's the case in a lot of these, and it's super frustrating. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And I mean... We say that, but of course those are the ones you hear about, right? Like, right. there are so many yeah. cases where great police work is yeah, done. of course. Like, not trying to diminish yes. from great police work, but... Yeah, for sure. In cases specifically like this, it's incredibly frustrating mm-hmm. to have things turn out the way that they do. So, I want to move on. Tia talked about the family. We know only two of the kids were shot. That leaves three. Right. That were not at the scene at all. The two of Bob's kids and then one more of Dawn's. Yes. Jackie, Jeff, and Jessica were not home that night. Jessica slept over at a friend's house. Jackie was out of town. And Jeff had gone to prom, slept over at a friend's house. And then the following morning, they went to Great America, which is a Six Flag amusement park. Okay, so I want to move on to just a general timeline so we can get an idea of what happened and possibly when they were murdered. The previous day on Saturday, there were a number of people who stopped by the Pelly house before prom to show off their dresses and tuxes and pose for pictures. So there were a couple kids that went over there. Got their picture taken Mm -hmm. with the 35 millimeter camera. We make a big deal about that. You'll see why later. And that was mm, up until roughly five. 
So there was a lot of traffic in and out of the home. Bob was clearly alive. Everybody was fine. Nothing was going on. By 5.30, someone else went over to have their pictures taken. And the house was locked. No one could get in. Jeff had left because he was also going to prom. So his car was not in the driveway. He was already gone. Doors were all locked. And the curtains and blinds were all closed by that point. To make the timeline even shorter, they say that the, all of those people were going in and out of the home between 4.30 and 5. So yes. that's... Okay. And then by 5.30. So that's a 30-minute window. 5 to 5.30 at this point is our general window when the murders would have happened. Wow. Yes. With that said, Tia, I want to hear your thoughts. So as I was saying earlier, why I think that they handled the whole situation the way they did is their number one suspect was Jeff Pelly. Mm-hmm. And do you want me to go into why they think that or do you want to go into that? You can go into it and okay. I'll, okay. if we have any differences in our notes, then I will also talk about Jeff Pelly. So I think as they walked in, they first thought that it was a murder-suicide yeah. Until they got more into it. Mm-hmm. And then they were like, okay, this is definitely a homicide. and With no weapon. Yeah, with no weapon found. Right. And come to find out, the Pellies owned a 20-gauge shotgun. That shotgun was nowhere in the home. Well, the story is with that shotgun that Jeff had threatened his life. So Bob got rid of all of the guns in the home. Mm-hmm. But Jessica, she was nine at the time, so it's kind of hard to know. She said that she saw the gun in the home the night before she went to her sleepover. So that's a really loose statement. It's tricky because the other sister, Jackie and Jeff, both say no. He'd already gotten rid of all All the the guns. guns. There was not a single gun left in the home. Mm. And I'm pretty sure somewhere it says that he had given these guns in a bag to a certain person. I can't remember the name. I think, I don't know if they even questioned that guy. I can't remember. His name was Thomas. Thomas, So they gave all the guns to a guy named Thomas. The original police in the investigation didn't really follow up on him. But later some things happened there that we'll chat about. And what's crazy to me, so the, the other form of evidence that goes towards Jeff is that this person had to have been in the home. In the home, comfortable in the home, down the hallway. Mm. Had to have possibly come out of one of those bedrooms to shoot Bob Pelly. Okay. They because, had to have come yeah. from one of those bedrooms. Okay, because Bob was like facing the end of the hallway, correct? Right. Okay. So his yeah. feet like were down, in the yeah. hallway. Okay. Like he was looking down the hallway at the bedrooms. So whoever shot him came out of one of the bedrooms... And shot him from the end of the hallway first and then walked over and finished. So somebody that's comfortable in the home knows the home. So instantly, that's what's going on is they're almost instantly they are, Jeff is the number one suspect. And the reason why, Bob was a well-known man. Everybody knew him. He was the pastor in this community. He talked to everybody. And the recent talk and rumors had been that Jeff had been misbehaving and he was grounded and not to go to prom. Bob had told multiple people that he did something to Jeff's car so that he couldn't drive and leave. Yeah, he said that it was dismantled. So there's the motive. 
But then Jeff's car is not there at 5.30 when someone else came to take pictures. Exactly. Right? Yes. And here was the deal. The reason that you have such solid witnesses for that argument is because Jeff went and asked their family friend if he could borrow their Trans Am mm-hmm. to go to the prom. So they were like, yeah, sure. We'll just check in with your parents, make sure that's okay. So they reach out to Bob and he's like, no, he's not allowed to drive his car right now. So I don't want him driving yours. Mm -hmm. I've I've dismantled his car so he can't even drive it if he wanted to. And what was going to happen was Bob was going to take Jeff to the prom himself. Bob was going to drive him there. Okay. He could not participate in any prom activities. So couldn't do dinner. They also wanted to go bowling. He wasn't allowed to do that. Couldn't do the sleepover and couldn't go to the amusement park. All he could do was go to the dance and his dad would be dropping him off and picking him up. I mean, at least the dad let him go to the dance. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Because he had been, the issue that kind of prompted this was Jeff had stolen something. And I don't have all the details of that, mm-hmm. but he stole something okay. from someone. So and Jeff was a troublemaker. That's kind of what I got from it. So yeah. he was a troublemaker, but... Also, just to note, he was already graduated. He didn't have to go to school. So he was smart. He was doing good in school. He was doing good academically. So remind me, how old was he? 17. 17. 17. Okay. So where's Jeff? Yeah. Where's Jeff? (laughs) That's who they're looking for. Okay. So thinking about the timeline, specifically with Jeff in mind, when the other kids came to take pictures... They saw him there with his family at 5 p.m. on prom night, on Saturday night. And then at around 5.20, Jeff made a telephone call to his girlfriend, Darla, who was his date for the evening, obviously. Darla. From, (laughs) I know, from a local gas station. So then he met up with her and their other couple that was in their group. Around 5.30 at their friend's house where he changed out from his regular clothes into his tux. They took some pictures, went to dinner, went to prom, did all the things. He did go to prom and bowling and slept at his friend's house and went to the amusement park the next morning. And he went to dinner. Yeah, he did all the prom activities and went to the dance and he drove himself in his Mustang. Okay. Now that we know who their main suspect is and what they were up to that night, I want to get real nitty gritty with the timeline here. Okay. So prepare. (laughs) Okay. At 4.45-2.5, there are specific couples coming to take their prom pictures. They both see Jeff and Bob alive, happy, and well Mm -hmm. at this time. At 5.15... Slash 520, other kids leave. This one kid was there, and then he realized he forgot the corsage for his date, so he leaves. And he says Jeff's car is there at that time. By 530, we know at this point Jeff's Mustang is now gone. The girl I talked about earlier who came by and the door was locked, her name's Crystal, They were going to go to her house to take pictures 
and all the things of her and her dress, whatever. Which I don't, I don't know why is that a pastor thing? I thought that was weird. Like everyone because, going to his house to yeah, take pictures. Yeah, so it is weird. It is very weird to me. But I think it's because he had the camera. He had okay. like the nicest he had the camera. Nice camera. Nice camera. Yeah. Okay. Because they keep saying 35 millimeter. And I'm like, yeah. Oh, okay. yeah, I think <laughs> he had like the nicest camera back in the day. Back At then. the time. Yeah. Got it. Very okay. weird still. Because I'm like, why is this a thing? Yeah. Yeah. I was Let's wondering go to that. Let's pastor's too. house and take pictures. Yeah. I thought it was weird. Bishop's house and take pictures. <laughs> yeah. Because they weren't Jeff's friends. Like, they weren't in his group. Right. These were One other of them kids. was his ex girlfriend to get into more detail. How weird. That is so yeah. awkward. So, anyways. Awkward. Awkward. They were a no-show for Crystal. Her and her date kind of wait around for a minute. They don't show up. So they arrive at the Pelly home at 5.50. And everything's boarded up, locked mm-hmm. up, all the things. Now, there's a little bit of conflicting information here. Because at around 5, this person's not super sure when they saw this. One of Jeff's friends and his cousin see Jeff driving by in his Mustang. At five, you said? Around. Around yeah. five. Yeah, they didn't have a solid yeah, time. Like, give or take, you could, that could be 520. You know yeah. what I mean? Around yeah, five. their time wasn't solid, but I do have some solid time coming up in a minute. But they said around five, they saw him driving by and they're like, well, how do you know it was him? And they're like, well, we know his car. Right. So... They did not, like, talk, say hi. It wasn't that kind of seeing him. They just saw his car drive by. Where we do get real nitty-gritty with the timeline is at this gas station that Jeff went to. There was this guy, Dennis, working at the time and saw him at about 5.15. He was working on the hood of his car, so Jeff pulls up to the gas station Dennis noted the time because he was supposed to be off at five and his replacement was still not there yet. So he's like checking his watch, checking his watch. Like, yeah. where are you? Notices Jeff pulls up at about 515 and pops the hood up on his car and is kind of tinkering around with things for a little bit. And then Jeff comes in to use the phone and what the story is, and Dennis didn't hear this conversation, but this is what Jeff says. He was calling Darla to let her know, I'm going to be late because he's supposed to be to the friend's house by 530. Okay. And it's already 515. Yeah. So he's for sure going to be late at this point. So he's like, hey, I'm going to be late. I'm working on the car. Like, I'll be there as soon as I can. Now, by the time Dennis clocks out, which is at 537, Jeff is gone. He'd already fixed things and driven off. What is weird about this is that would give Jeff 10 to 15 minutes to commit the crime. Like to go back home? Is that what you're saying? Oh, no, you're saying. In the timeline of people being there and then him leaving. Mm -hmm. They saw him at 5. So they left at 5. And no one after that point saw Jeff and Bob in the home alive. Okay. But then Jeff is at this gas station, which, by the way, is six minutes away from the parsonage. Mm-hmm. So you have to take that into account as well. The drive there. Yeah. Yeah, the drive there. And that's at, like, 5.15. So this goes back to the very important, sad details of how gruesome this crime was. He had, five, uh, you know, 10 to 15 minutes to do that, clean up 
and leave. Pick up all the shotgun shells. Clean up himself. Because obviously he would have everything all over him. Yeah. Hide the murder weapon. Hide the murder weapon because it was not there. Pick up all the shell casings. But also at the same point... No one knew about this all night. I mean, unless there is an alibi that he stays with the friends all night and doesn't leave. But, like, he could have left and cleaned it up, right? Like, hidden the murder weapon. I'm glad the you bring that up because he was with the friends all night. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> so they did. He shows up. Him. Yeah. He goes to the house. They're together all night. The dinner, sleeps at the buddy's house. He does not leave his friends okay. the whole time. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so to me, it doesn't seem like that is enough time for, to clean everything up, well, to do it, to clean everything up, to drive six minutes to the gas station. Yeah, that doesn't seem like enough time to do that. Pretty insane, right? Yeah. It's a snug timeline. The main detectives on the case say that they still think it's possible. I mean, anything's possible, I guess, right? (laughs) Let's see. And this is where we stop the episode for this week. This has been part one. Join us next week for part two.